One of the things that people get hung up on when they talk about origins, origins of the universe and also the earth, one of the things that people get hung up on is the age of the universe, the age of the universe, the age of the earth. The questions go like this. How old is the universe? How old is the earth? Are they young, as in several thousand years? Or are they much older, like millions or perhaps billions of years? And then I think a good question is, what does the Bible say about the age of the universe, the age of the earth? I think that's a good place to start, right? You can ask all the questions yourself. You can ask the experts, the scholars, the commentators. But what does the Bible really say about these questions? The simplest answer to those questions, those specific questions, is that the Bible does not tell us how old the universe is or how old the earth is. It simply does not tell us. This guy over here might tell you, well, it tells you this, and this guy might tell you, it tells you this. I read the whole thing from cover to cover. It does not tell you how old the world is, okay? It just does not. Now, people can speculate. People can come up with great, and there's wonderful theories, and they, they can be backed up and all that, but the Bible doesn't tell us how old the world is or how old the earth is. Now, we can look at the answers that certain people give to those questions, and we can ask a question perhaps like this. Does the Bible support that claim? Does, is there any biblical backing to back up that particular claim? In the Christian community, there are different camps concerning the questions on the age of the universe and the earth. One camp is known as YEC, or Young Earth Creationism. And I'll have that up on your screen. Yeah, Y-E-C, you will see it abbreviated because I guess people who are involved in these types of debates want to, you know, they get tired of saying, saying all that together, so they just abbreviate. And then there's another camp that is known as Old Earth Creation, or O-E-C, okay? So Y-E-C or O-E-C. And there are different Christian groups and Christian scientists who make cases for the respective viewpoint on this particular subject, on this particular question. I, I want to start tonight by taking a look specifically at, the, at young earth creationism. You say, well, why are you going into this? Because these are important questions that people have. These are important questions. And one of the cases that a lot of the apologists are making is that we're sending our our. Uh, our kids are graduating from high school and we're sending them off to public university and we're sending them off to where they're sitting in, in very progressive places and with scientists that are literally saying this and this and then such and such and this is the way it is. And really for many, many years they've been unprepared for the onslaught of the information that has gone out. And so these are very important things to discuss about, just discuss in church. So I want to take a look tonight uh, first of all, at young earth creationism, uh, most people that make the case for young earth, a young earth, um, they assert that the world and the earth are roughly 6,000 years old, give or take a few years, okay? And they arrive at this date mostly uh, from the genealogical research that was put together 
by a, a bishop whose name was James Usher. James Usher was born in 1581, and he died in 1656. He was the Archbishop of Armagh, primate of all Ireland, and vice-chancellor of Trinity College in Dublin. He was highly regarded in his day, uh, in his activity within the church, and as a scholar. Of his many works, his treatise on, on the chronology has proved the most durable, Based on an intricate correlation of Middle Eastern and Mediterranean histories and the Holy Scriptures, it was incorporated into an authorized version and printed with the Bible in 1701. And because it was printed with the Bible, it thus became regarded almost unquestioningly as a part of the Bible. So James Usher's presentation on the chronologies Many people would literally grow up thinking, well, this was part of the, you know, this, you know, was in there, right? And so that this kind of thing happened. So through his chronologies, he literally went so far as to be so bold as to literally place a date for the creation. Yes, you can look this up. Bishop Usher's date for the creation of the, of the world. And it, it was on, according to Usher, Sunday, October 23rd, 4004 BC. Yes, you can Google this right now. You can check it all for yourselves. This is all available on the internet. Usher calculated the dates, these dates, from the genealogies, uh, and, other, and he, he calculated other dates for various events. For example, Adam and Eve were driven out of paradise. I don't know if you knew this, but it was Monday, November 10th, 4004 B.C. (laughs) And then the ark touched down on Mount Ararat on the 5th of May, 2348 B.C., and that was a Wednesday. So there are those that take Usher's work, among some other things, and they will, in, in fact, they're among some of the most adamant that the Bible says that the, it's 6,000 years old. But again, I've read Genesis many times. I still can't find where it tells me that the earth is 6,000 years old. Um, but this is the case that they make, okay? There are also smart thinking Christians in the camp called Old Earth Creationism, or OEC. And the people in OEC fall into several different categories and understandings of how and when the universe was created. Um, most of these guys are, um, are scientists, and they actually kind of accept a lot of the general science that's out there, um, the Big Bang cosmology, and so they um, make arguments uh, that are kind of congruent with modern science and kind of try to bring that along with the scriptures. And so they have certain interpretations of Genesis 1 that kind of will go along with this kind of old universe or old, old earth. I actually think it's a misnomer because it's old earth or young earth, but it's really about the, how old the universe is. Um, and so they will, they will have these various interpretations. Um, one of those is called the age-day theory, the age-day theory. Another one, you have the pictorial day theory, and there are others. Probably the best of the of the old Earth interpretations, um, at least in my in my uh, opinion, is the age day theory, 
and this is probably best argued for by astrophysicist Hugh Ross, uh, and I think I have a picture of Hugh. Um, Dr. Ross argues that Genesis 1-1 is the creation of the universe, and then the six days of creation that follow are six eras of time where the earth is brought to a place of habitability for animals and mankind. Some of the argumentation centers around the fact that the Hebrew word for day has a few different meanings. And this is true. You can look it up in any of the Hebrew lexicons. I looked it up in one of the most famous Hebrew lexicons, Brown Driver Briggs. Uh, and it has, um, it has, I don't know, eight, nine different definitions. Um, a day, a time, a year, a day as opposed to night. A day meaning 24 hour, a 24-hour day. Um, a day in terms of a division of time, a working day, a day's journey, uh, days in terms of like a lifetime, um, back in the day, people, you know, we even have those different meanings of the word day, um, and then a time, and, a, and then a period in general, and it's also used for a year. Um, and so many, many um, uh, different meanings of the word yum, and yum equals day. So there are various theories out there on the interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, really kind of answer that question for you tonight. <laughs> you can, you, can um, you know, continue to do the research on that, you know, young earth, old earth, young universe, old universe. Although I do want to present something to you today that might um, kind of straddle the fence a little bit. Um, between the two, but we'll take a look at it. When you look at the Bible as a whole, from cover to cover, what is, a, what, what is it about? It's about the redemption plan of God. Amen? It's about the redemption plan of God. He, God made man in his image, and man sinned against God, and then it talks about the great lengths that God goes to to redeem and to restore man back to life. Amen? So this is really what the Bible is all about. And I believe that we can see the foundation of God's heart for restoration and redemption even right here in Genesis 1-2. So let's take a look at this verse, the foundation of restoration, Genesis 1-2. And we're going to make this point tonight. God's heart to restore is seen in the creation. God's heart to restore is seen in the creation. So let's read it. Genesis 1, verse 2, it says this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, right off the bat, I want to just mention that in, in the young earth creation view and the one specifically made popular by Bishop Usher, I think there is a particular weakness in the chronology, okay? Um, there, I, I do believe that there is, at least in my view, I think there is a weakness in the chronology. And the weakness in the chronology is that Bishop Usher's dates don't account for the creation of the host of heaven, the rebellion and fall of Lucifer, 
and the war in heaven which resulted in one-third of the host of heaven follow, following Satan in that rebellion. So uh, it, it doesn't seem to me to account for those particular issues. In Bishop Usher's dating, there's no room for all this to happen unless somehow you want to propose that all this happened in the week. Somehow in the first day, God created the universe. He created the host of heaven, the angels, Lucifer, all this. They had all this time to do all this stuff. Created the whole world in six days. And then he, the enemy shows up in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. So boom. It just kind of you know, happens that fast. And to be honest with you, I've always kind of had a problem with that. I, I, it never seemed to kind of really work um, in terms of you know, how, how does that all play out. And here's... Here's the thing that I think we, you have to wrap your mind around. If the things that the Bible says are true, they actually have to work out in actual space-time. So, the, so there's a, there's, there, there had to have been a place where God created for the angels to exist, for Lucifer to do what he was in charge of, and then for the, 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 the rebellion, the fall, and, and, the, and, and then, of course, the aftermath of all that. Um, and so... Um, you know, one of the questions that we looked at a little bit about last week was this. When did God create the angels? When was Lucifer not fallen? When was it that he was with God and still a worshiper of God? When, when did all this happen? Um, and so I think these are very good questions when you look at the dating and, and, and the chronology. And they're not just good questions to come up with a date. They're good questions because I think it's a good idea for a Christian to have kind of a little bit of an idea what happened with all that. You know, because the Bible goes on and on. If you're going to be a New Testament Christian and you're going to, oh, well, you know, the enemy ro roars around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, where did this guy come from? Who is he? When was he with God? When did he rebel? So you, you can't just kind of take that and not really kind of connect all the dots, at least to the best of your ability um, in, in, in that sense. So when did God create the, the angels, or as we talked about last week, the Beneha Elohim? We talked about this last week. Um, I mentioned to you when God talked to Job in Genesis 38, there was a, uh, God gave Job a science quiz. It was like 61 questions. And I think today we can only answer like 10 of them. So like we, like today we, we still fail God's science test. And uh, so we're, we're not, you know, we're not that advanced as we think we are. But anyways, God asked Job a question in that particular uh, science quiz. And the question was this, were you there when I laid the foundations of the world? When I created the earth, were you there? And obviously the, you know, the answer, it's like a rhetorical question, really, but the answer is no, Job, you weren't there. But there were some folks that were there, actually, at the, the laying of the foundation of the earth, because we're told in that chapter, chapter 38 of Job, that the stars, the, the, the morning stars, the angels of God, the Beneha Elohim, the sons of God, they literally shouted for joy when God created the earth and he laid the foundation of it. And so that there was this glorious moment. So as I said last week, you had God existing without the universe, just in eternity past by himself. Then he had to create a universe or a space in which to exist with other divine beings or other, other things, material things. And then you had the creation of the earth and all 
of it. So you had him dwelling with these, the angels, if you want to call them that. I like to call them either the sons of God or the Beneha Elohim. So then we have the earth being created and the foundation being laid. So it seems that all of that, in terms of reading it through, is somehow in verse 1. Because when you get to verse 2 and then you get into verse 3, verse 3 will take us right into what we would call the, the, the days of creation. And then they kind of move through and then you get to day 7 and on into the history of man. And so it seems to me that the, the, the idea of the universe being created is what we see in Genesis 1.1, and that's what we talked about last week. In, in, in other words, the terms heaven and earth together could be a Hebrew a phraseology for the universe. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the, in the beginning, God created the universe. And so he created the universe, the space, and then, of course, the, the heavenly hosts, and then they're on hand for the laying of the foundation of the earth and then shouting for joy, okay? So during this, during this process, you have God existing with the host of heaven. So tonight, I want to talk to you specifically about uh, a theory, uh, a particular theory on this, and some of you will be familiar with it, some of you will have heard about it but not really know much about it, but there's some great pastors and scholars that hold to this, or at least kind of suggested it, um, and I'm one that kind of leans a little bit in that direction, okay? So I'm not going to oversell it in that sense, but uh, anyways, you know, that's my disclaimer. Okay. <laughs> it's called the gap theory, the gap theory. Anybody familiar with the gap theory? Raise your hand. You've heard of it. Raise your hand if you've never heard of the gap theory. Okay. What I want to do is I want to want to talk about the gap theory, but I want to want to go down through Genesis 1-2 and take a look at what it is and how it actually kind of deals with what we see in Genesis 1 verse 2 because we have the creation of the universe and the, the earth there in verse 1 and then we have this state of the earth that we see in verse 2. And so there's been a lot talked about and written about uh, concerning this, uh, this issue. So you have the gap theory and so when you come to, um, the gap theory basically suggests that there's a gap of time. We don't know how long. And that's why this work got its, got its name. It's kind of a clever name, right? Um, there's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And there's some things that happen during that, during that period of time. Um, and we can look to other parts of the scripture to, de to determine where those types of things would fit in in a chronology if you were going to lay it out. By the time you get to verse 2, you read verse 1, you get to verse 2, and it says this. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So you have the earth, the, the universe, and the earth being created in verse 1. But then when you get to verse 2, now it is it is formless and void. It is without form and void. The word here for was actually is an interesting word. The word was here is the verb. It's actually the verb to be, right? Was is the verb to be. And it is in what is called the pluperfect form. And it, it has been suggested that 
an interpretation of that particular word really could be became, that it became, or in, 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 that, in the definition of the word was, that it was in this state, okay? It became to be in this state. So you have this pluperfect form of the word to be that, that in, in uh, Hebrew is the, is the, it's actually haya. Haya equals became. So Genesis 1 verse 2 could be translated this way. And I'll have it up on the screen. Now the earth had become or became formless and void. Now you say, now it, it, that, that seems to be maybe a leap or like a jump or where are you getting all this? Well, I want to show you a scripture in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 18 that actually deals with, uh, it actually deals with um, this, this uh, the earth and it being created. Uh, Isaiah 45, 18, it'll be up on the screen for you. It says this, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. So basically what this verse tells us is that God created the heavens and he formed the earth and he made it and he established it. And it says that he did not create it in vain. He did not create it in vain. And the word there is the same word there for formless in Genesis 1 verse 2. Formless is actually tohu. Tohu is a word that you need to know about as we go through Genesis. But it's tohu. It's formless. It's void. It's in vain. And so the earth was created, the heavens were created, but they weren't created formless, void, or in vain. But yet that's how we find it when we come to verse 2 of Genesis. So it wasn't created that way, but that's how we discover it as we read it and we come to it in verse 2 of our text. So really the phrase in Genesis 1-2, formless and void, is this phrase, it's tohu vabohu. It's kind of a kind of kind of you know rolls off the tongue a little bit once you learn how to say it tohu vabohu everybody say it tohu vabohu very good you guys are great um, so the question is what is this talking about in Isaiah 45 again back to the strict strict young earth creationist creationism it does not account for the creation of the host of heaven including Lucifer and his subsequent fall the war in heaven and the banishment from heaven, um, and, and, and really that, that punishment, if you will. And so really, as you read the scriptures, you have that God created the heaven and the earth. And as God created the heavens and the earth, he also created the angelic beings, the, the sons of God, and he created the, the earth to be inhabited. And so there were inhabitants upon the earth. There is even the idea that Lucifer, we would know him as Satan. The Bible calls him Satan. We know him as Lucifer. We know him as the red dragon, all these different titles, right? And the, the dots are connected by the, the different biblical authors. But there is the idea that Lucifer ruled over the sphere of the earth as the highest ranking son of God. We have some information on Lucifer in Ezekiel 28. Now the verse talks about 
a king. It, the chapter begins talking about a king, but as you read the, the chapter, you suddenly realize that there's no way on earth that this could only be talking about an earthly human king, that there's something about this that is beyond that. And there is this idea of, about the powers behind the, the human powers. That we, we learn this in Isaiah, uh, uh, Ephesians 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so there are, there are powers, if you will, behind the, the human powers in that sense. And so that's what we see happening in Ezekiel 28. And so beginning at verse 14, you'll see it up on the screen. It says this, uh, talking specifically of Lucifer, you were the anointed cherub who covers, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity was found in you. So until, until you get to that last phrase, you're kind of going along and God is talking about this anointed cherub who covered this incredible being that, 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 that was in the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the fire of sun. You were perfect. In another, in another location, it talks about the beauty that he, that he had, that he possessed. And that, that he was fitted with, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the, he could sing or do music or something. He, had the, he did timbrels and things. And, the, and, and he had uh, the, the, the stones, which was really kind of that picture of uh, just kind of the glory, really, that, that, that God had given him as a created being, as the son of God. He was given all of that. And, and so we see this. And so... Uh, he was that anointed cherub who covers. So there is this idea that the anointed cherub, and I'll actually read this. This is actually from Pastor Chuck Smith from his notes. The anointed cherub that covereth in the garden of God, every precious stone is covering. And so that in reality, it was here upon the earth that he had his dominion and his rulership and there were life forms upon the earth prior to the introduction of man that there was plant life and various life forms. So this is, this is what this is about here. Going down to Isaiah chapter 14, this is another place that we have information on this character who is Lucifer. Pick it up, verse 12. You'll see it on the screen. It says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you were cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain, the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the, to the lowest depths of the pit. So what is God saying here? He's talking to Lucifer. He's telling him, look, you have fallen. You have fallen from heaven. You were cut down. And this is why. Because pride came up in your heart. Pride came up in your heart. You were created. This beautiful being, this, this person, this ch mighty cherub that covers, that, 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 that reigned with God, that, that was a part of the, of the family of God, if you will, the, the, the pre 
uh, human, the pre-Adamic family of God. And yet he, he rebelled against God and pride came up in his heart. And the, this section of scripture is important. Put it back up there, Christian, because this is what's called the five I wills of Lucifer. The five I will statements of Lucifer where pride comes up in his heart. And he says, you just read it and it's incredible. Because God tells him, you've said in your heart, you said this in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I mean, he's literally challenging God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Wow. So what is he saying? I mean, this is a direct challenge to to God. To, to the Lord. And he says, yet you shall be brought down. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. So again, these are the five I will statements of Lucifer, and he said them in his heart, and this is why God hates pride. This is why the pride is a devastation upon our lives, because it is that ultimate rebellion against the Lord. And we see it played out here with Lucifer. So we know from the rest of Scripture that when this happens, when he wills to do this, to be basically worshipped as God, what does he do? He rebels against God and he leads a rebellion against the Lord. And we're told in other parts of Scripture that there was literally a third of the angels, the third of the stars, if you will. Um, the stars in the Bible are also equated with the, the angelic host or the host of heaven. And so when you see that, it's included in that. And so he leads this rebellion and he falls away. So here in verse two, in Genesis, we come to it and it says, the earth was or had become without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. So how is it that it became wasted and desolate? How is it that we now see it in a formless, void, vain state that Isaiah tells us that it wasn't created that way? How is it that we find it that way? It is suggested that perhaps at Satan's rebellion, the wrath of God was poured out and the earth was, in that sense, destroyed from its original creation, from that creation of the earth that the angels saw and shouted for joy. When that was laid, when that foundation was laid. And so there is this idea that it was destroyed with water. Now, I don't have any scientific evidence, but I do understand that there is fairly decent evidence for a, an ice age of some kind. And this would actually kind of go along with the earth being covered with water um, and ice because it doesn't tell us when it's the face of the earth is covered with water. It doesn't tell us in what form the water is. Right now we have water and ice that are covering it. And you could actually say water's covering those parts of the earth. So water's covered the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved over the water's. So that the earth was just covered 
with water. Now, I want to take you to one more passage, just it's a kind of an interesting passage that also deals with this phrase, tohu vabohu, without form and void. In Jeremiah 4, verse 23, you'll see it up on the screen. Jeremiah says this, I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void and to the heavens and they had no light. Verse 24, it won't be on the screen, but you'll just hear it. I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked and behold, behold, there was no man and all the birds of the heavens had fled. And I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So what is Jeremiah saying? This particular section of scripture in Jeremiah 4 is a lament over the destruction of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. So it's a lament over that destruction. But what do we see that is a part of that destruction? That the earth is tohu vabohu. By virtue of what? By virtue of the fierce anger of God being weighed out upon it. So that when we come to this phrase tohu vabohu, we understand that this isn't like, oh, well, it just wasn't put together yet. No, this actually has an idea that it had become under the fierce anger and the wrath of God, that there was a destruction aspect to it, okay? And, and so this is what we see in Jeremiah as it relates to the destruction of Judah. So this is, this is very, very interesting. So we see again that tohu vabohu is a condition of something that was not previously that way. So we come back to Genesis 1-2. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the waters. The deep, the face of the deep, the face of the waters. This, this idea of deep is important because the, the word here for deep is the word to home in the Hebrew. It is actually translated in the Septuagint as the abyss or the abuso. And this is something that I could actually take you back to that where God says your place will be in Sheol in the bottomless pit. This is the, the, this is the same idea of the abuse. So when here we are in Genesis and God hovering over the face of the deep, the Tahome, but then when we get to Revelation and we see what God is doing with Satan, with Lucifer, and he's cast into where? The bottomless pit, the abuso, okay? So you have to connect the dots here and to see exactly what is, is going on. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, yeah, the Spirit of God hovered over the Ruach Elohim. The Ruach Elohim hovered over the waters. So what I want you to see, I want you to see what God is doing here. And it's powerful. The heaven and earth were created perfect. 
But through Lucifer's rebellion, the wrath of God had brought destruction to the earth, just as he will later do in the early parts of Genesis with the rebellion that happens in Genesis 6 and so on. And Noah becomes that agent of God to, re- to save some people, the family of Noah, through the, through the destruction of that water. Through this prior destruction to the earth, and it was laid waste and formless and void, just sitting in a totally vain waste. Can you see the earth just sitting there? Just in a formless, void, vain destruction, darkness over the fa- over the to home. The waters over the face of the deep, just sitting there. We don't know how long it sat like there, like that. We don't know. But what we do know that Lucifer was completely incapable of doing anything about it. So it just laid there in waste until the second half of verse (laughs) 2. Until the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And what we are really then going to see in this week of creation is God bringing the earth back from a state of waste to once again to be habitable for animals and a new creature. Man, made in the image of God, a little lower than the angels, but yet made in the image of God. And I'll just throw this out there because this connects the dots for you. This man that was made in the, a little lower than the angels would be redeemed back from his sin to become a part of the family of God. Amen? That's the story of the Bible. That's actually the story of the Scripture from verse 1 of Genesis to the last verse in Revelation 22. That's the story of the Bible. And here we are getting into this Christmas, we're getting about to about 720p, okay? From the crayon picture, we're, 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 getting, we're getting some clarity and crispness here about what this is about. So the Spirit of God hovers over the waters to hover. The Hebrew word, to hover above, to flutter, to brood, to vibrate as a bird with young, as a bird would brood over its young. The Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, brooded over, fluttered over the waters and the face of the deep. Now here's what a scholarly pastor and commentator, A.W. Pink, had to say about this. And I quote, And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Here is where hope begins to dawn. God did not abandon the primitive earth, which had become a ruin. It would not have been surprising, though if he had, why should God trouble any further about that which lay under his righteous judgment? Why should he condescend to notice that which was now a desolate waste. Why, indeed? But here was where sovereign mercy intervened. He had gracious designs towards that formless void. 
He purposed to resurrect it, to restore it. And the first thing we read of in bringing about this desired end was the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There was divine activity. There was a movement on the part of the Holy Spirit. And this was a prime necessity. How could the earth resurrect itself? How could that which lay under the righteous judgment of God bring itself into the place of blessing? How could darkness transform itself into life? In the very nature of the case, it could not. The ruined creation was helpless. If there was to be a restoration and a new creation, divine power must intervene. The Spirit of God must move. Once again, once again, you go through all of this and say, so what, Pastor Charles? Y-E-C, O-E-C, gap theory. So what? What does this have to do with me? God is still moving by his spirit, the Ruach Elohim. The same Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim, comes alongside men and women wanting to draw them into a restored and redeemed relationship with himself. He wants to restore you. He wants to redeem you. You can't restore yourself. You might might try. You might try to to go to the self-help aisle. You may try to go to this counselor or this guru. You may try to resurrect yourself. But the reality is that you lie in waste in in a formlessness that only the Spirit of God can bring that life out of you. And if you will realize that he has come alongside you, that the paraclete, that the one who comes alongside is the same Spirit that came and hovered over the face of the waters, and he is still on the move today. Amen? Just like he did when he first hovered over the face of the abyss and hovered over the waters of the earth. So what are you going to do? Are you going to be a part of God's restoration plan? Are you going to allow the Holy Spirit to work by his power in your life? What is it in your life now that needs restoration? Friends, let me tell you, it's the Spirit of God that can restore that which lies in waste. He will, if you let him. But as my wife always reminds me, he's a perfect gentleman. The Lord is a perfect gentleman. What do you mean? He'll never push himself on you. He'll never barge in. We see him in Revelation chapter 3, and what is he doing? He's knocking at the door. Hey, I'd like to come in. I'd I'd like to sit down and have dinner, but behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Amen? And so we see that. He'll never push himself on you. But he will come alongside you. And if you'll open up your heart to him, he'll make you into a new creation.